Race Fuels is Australia's leading supplier of racing fuels. And with the new Bowsers at Queensland Raceway, it's never been easier to source your racing fuel trackside. Elf Race 102 is imported racing fuel direct from Europe. Offering power and protection, the Elf Race 102 is a popular fuel with racers seeking gains over pump fuel. Improve your lap times with Elf Race 102. Racefuels.com.au for all your fuel at the racetrack. This is the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing Podcast and your hosts, Darren Smith and Gary O'Brien. For Race Fuels, welcome to episode number 32 of the Grassroots Racing Podcast. We say a very big shout out to the really busy guys and girls at Race Fuels. They have been up and down the eastern seaboard and deep into Asia over the last weeks with their uh, supporting the Asian GT series. Uh, a big shout out to small crew, but boy, they're well travelled. A big shout out to Race Fuels for ongoing support with uh, our podcast. I'm Darren Smith. As I said, this is episode number 32. And uh, without too much further ado, sometimes I like to give him a big rap, but he's on holidays and he's joining me online all the way from the US of A, the Hawaiian version of the US of A. So if he sounds relaxed, he very much is. Welcome, Gary O'Brien. Hello, Daz. Hello, everyone. It is very relaxing, actually. I should be saying hello Well, I think you just did. <laughs> Yeah, been out of the country since um, after the Speed Series at Queensland Raceway, so we went and uh, covered that. And you'll talk later about what's happened to Big State Race down in um, Sandown. Absolutely, we will. But first of all, we have got a uh, a fantastic guest. In fact, a guy I spoke to earlier this year, and he was keen from sort of the moment we I uh, broke the ice with him to come on and uh, and have a chat with us. He'd heard of the uh, the Grassroots Racing podcast and was. Keen to chat with us, Gaz. He certainly is, um, or was. He is now. Uh, um, yeah, the name might fa- sound fairly familiar, uh, that being Davison, but it's not Alex or Will. It's rather his father, Richard, who's uh, been involved in motorsport for a long, long time, raced lots of uh, different categories, and currently is uh, winging it around in a Kent engine Formula Ford. But to hear more about... His story, we'll talk to him. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, gents, for having me. Really good to have you along, Richard. Um, the Davison name needs very little introduction to those that have been around in motorsport. And, and for those that, that haven't, I hope they enjoy this chat with you. Um, Gary and I hope that the Grassroots Racing podcast goes for long enough that we get to speak to uh, your boys and, uh, and then the next generation from that. And on that note, congratulations on uh, the, another recent uh, Davison being brought into the world. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Dash Davison. I'm, I can nearly visualize it now on the starting grid uh, in uh, 20 years time, but um, yeah, Will and Rihanna uh, very proudly uh, brought a new son into the world last week and uh, they're absolutely delighted parents and to be honest with you, it was one of those ones that I was uh, not sure would ever happen. But uh, it's just great for both of them. And I think uh, will certainly represent uh, a big change in their lives. As it does with everyone. And uh, I guess we'll touch on that um, as well, talking with you about being a, a parent and having uh, the next generation. And then well, who knows, the next generation again. 
uh, following on in the in the strong Davison footsteps. Um, Richard, I'd like to start this chat with you with the words Acuri Australia. And I've never actually, I've seen it around and I know it, it dates back to Lex's racing, but you from time to time see fit to enter a, a racing under that name as well. Yes, well, it, it does go back to my dad's time. It was a, a team or a team name that uh, he developed during the 50s. Um, and he raced under the Ecuri Australia uh, name. Uh, and if you see photos of uh, uh, his racing cars, certainly in the last few years of his life, uh, they all had the Ecuri Australia uh, badge on the side. And... Uh, you know, if you, if you were to read uh, my dad's book, um, one of the final chapters uh, tells a story about some very significant plans that my dad had post his retirement. And he was, you know, he was about to retire um, and had retired and made a few comebacks in the, the years uh, prior to his death. But um, he had some very significant plans of uh, bringing on the next generation of young Australians under the under the Acura Australia banner, both in open wheel and um, and uh, touring car area, and that was you know something he was incredibly passionate about. Obviously, after his death, you know it, it and and the first the first of his um, you know the the first of uh, of the young fellows he was bringing through uh, was a fellow by the name of Rocky Tresice, and as some of you will know, and many of you won't. Um, Rocky was killed uh, two weeks after my dad uh, in my dad's other car, and uh, you know, within two weeks, the whole, uh, I guess, dreams and ambitions that my dad had going into the future uh, were very much laid to rest. And needless to say, that the Curious Australia brand, you know, was was put aside, and and none of us as uh, Boys, I'm really talking about uh, my brother John and myself and my brother Chris. For one reason or another, really chose to run under the Ecuador Australia brand. It was something my mum wasn't really that keen on. But uh, as my brother Chris and I got involved in historic racing in around 2015, um, you know, we both got a bit of a passion for giving a little bit of a leg up to the next generation. And uh, we, we had a chat and made the decision that we'd resurrect Acura Australia. So whenever we enter these days, we enter under the Acura Australia brand. It certainly back to you. is a, a strong brand in historically. Sorry, Gaz. Yeah, all right. Now, just on going back to um, your beginnings in motorsport, um, you obviously had a um, uh, an involvement uh, for your dad, where was the decision made that you wanted to get involved yourself? <laughs> Look, it's a really interesting question because, you know, I was 10 when my dad died and um, I'd had I'd had really very little direct exposure being the age I was. Um, I do have, you know, vague recollections of, of uh, going to Sandown and I, and I, I think... Warwick Farm at one point, um, but after my dad died, it all got you know brushed under the under the table, and there was no, you know, there was no family support per se. And uh, as anybody that's got their sons involved in motor racing, and you know, in recent generations, usually the kids are starting at six or seven or eight in go karts, and 
you know, it's a, it's a pretty full on process to to get them into the system. But I guess back in the uh, mid seventies, which is when I started, uh, I suppose like a lot of young guys at that stage, um, I had been helping out my brother John, who'd who'd started racing um, in the late sixties, early seventies. I think I was the official left front wheel cleaner. Uh, it was about the extent of my involvement, but um, I'd started to develop a bit of a passion for it. But, you know, I had no access. I had no one to assist me. My mum, although she didn't put up barriers, she certainly, uh, you know, wasn't particularly keen. And it was really only a chance meeting with some some people where I got chatting to a guy who was going to England who was racing Formula Ford that a, a circumstance arose at the age of 21 where uh, I bought my first Formula Ford and really it had had done no driving whatsoever in any sort of competitive form prior to that. So uh, it was a bit of a wish and a prayer, to be honest with you, and uh, made a lot of mistakes in, in those early days um, just through lack of knowledge and um, probably, you know, there's a lot of expectation because of the name, but really it didn't come with the, the support or backing to back that up. And uh, that was something I was very keen to try and ensure with my own boys when they became involved that, uh, you know, I gave them that additional bit of guidance and background and support so that they wouldn't make all the same silly mistakes that I made. Richard, was the your first card that opened 600, was that the first Formula Ford race car? Yes, it was. It was, yeah. Um, yeah. It was, it was a car owned by a fellow by the name of Rhett Parker, and he'd been driving it in the... Um, I think it was the TAA Driver of the Europe Series back in, in those days, and he was heading off to England. And uh, uh, so, yeah, that was my first race car. You touched on something just then with um, talking about the the name and, um, you know, jumping into into the first race car. I guess in your realm, um, you were just going to start going racing. And you've said publicly in in, in a few different interviews that you you would check the tyre pressures, kick the tyres and uh, polish, the, polish it up and away you'd go but the the Davison name did did that weigh on your shoulders at all did you think oh I've got a weight of expectation to to perform here or were you just off to have some fun good question I, I you know I, I I I try to think back at that time and quite frankly I was just a young guy in my early 20s wanting to go out and have a crack um the only driving I'd done is my mum allowed me to buy an old Austin that we put up on our farm at uh, Lilydale where we we're all brought up and I used to uh, you know, drive that like an idiot around the farm as sideways as possible. And probably the best thing that happened to me was not long after I'd, we bought that car for 50 bucks, uh, the brakes failed and I had no knowledge of how to fix them. So um, my way of slowing down was approaching corners very, very sideways to rub off as much speed as we possibly could. <laughs> and then when I entered Formula Ford, it was the period uh, that... Um, Formula Ford have been racing on on quite sticky, slick, um, slick Goodyear slick tyres prior to my involvement, and uh, my involvement uh, coincided with them going to a, a Bridgestone RD one hundred and two road going radial that had virtually no grip whatsoever. So we used to drive those cars like rally cars, and I think you know all my practice in the paddocks probably did me some good. But yeah, I, I haven't really answered your question. No, it really didn't weigh on my mind. Um, it, it did come with ex, some expectation, I, I think, because you, you couldn't hide from the fact that people would constantly 
approach you and talk to you about my dad and 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 most of them were wonderful stories in fact the one thing you know we we're talking about gross grassroots motor racing and you know lex was obviously at the sort of echelon of the sport but the number of people that would approach me who were sort of from the you know battler's end of the paddock uh who would say that how often lex would come down and you know offer support or chat to them um you know he's very much a people's person but uh other than that no i just sort of put my head down and tried to do what I could do, uh, but it was literally a wish and a prayer. It was checking the tyre pressures and um, just driving the thing as hard as I could. Yeah, well, someone who, who you said didn't have much experience or knowledge certainly picked it up fairly quickly. Third in the 1978 uh, Formula Ford Championships, one of a bad uh, progression. Yeah, look, I, what do you say about... Um, the apple not falling far from the tree or natural ability. I, you know, I can't really answer that question. We literally went and just drove the pants off these things. And, uh, you know, obviously you'd like to think you learned a bit uh, along the way. Uh, and by the time we got to 78, um, I had a, a fellow by the name of Bill Reynolds, who was uh, back in the day responsible for designing and building the Wren racing cars. And he'd taken me under his wing, and uh, you know he was uh, he was um, you know setting up the car and giving me some support in that regard. And you know I think that, that was largely responsible for me starting to move forward. In nineteen seventy eight, Richard, where did the I'm I'm presuming that was the driver to Europe series era. Where did yes. the driver to Europe series travel to? What what race tracks were you actually racing on that formulated the the Formula Ford Championship? Oh, you're going to ask for me to remember how many races we did in 1978 now, but I can certainly <laughs> tell you it was uh, um, it was not Phillip Island, unfortunately. That sort of by that stage had sort of virtually shut down. But we raced at Calder, we raced at Winton, Oran Park, Amaru. I think that was about the extent of it. I think it was mainly those those uh, four circuits that I had. Like, you didn't go to Lakeside. No, I raced Lake. The only time I ever raced Lakeside was in my Rolt RT4 in the early 80s. So, no, we didn't race Formula Ford there. Not not back in the uh, mid-late 70s anyway. So the, the family business, Paragon Shoes, um, which fa- famously emblazoned the side of your, your Formula 2 cars later on in your career, sort of started to demand your attention. Um, I've spoken to some people that were around in motorsport in those days and uh, over the over the last week or so since um since we organized this and um quite a few of them was were, were, were like it was quite a shame richard was was on a, a trajectory and he was going to win races but the like many people the business takes over um you disappeared for a little while and then re-emerged back into uh into open wheeler racing in 1980 with formula two yeah, Paragon was sort of the poison chalice, I guess. Um, it was, you know, the business of my uh, my grandfather, who died many years before I was born. He started it post-World War I. Uh, he dragged my dad out of the army um, during the Second World War to, to come into the business because uh, it was considered as an essential industry during that period. Um, my dad built it quite substantially, and I guess it provided the you know, the core funding for, for, for all his exploits. Um, uh, but following his death in 1965, you know, my poor old mum was left to bring up seven seven young kids. 
and she was trying to keep the business going. And, uh, you know, I'm the second youngest of seven and none of my older siblings uh, for one reason or another had chosen to go into the business. And uh, it was sort of like I was last man standing when I came out of school. And, uh, my mum said, you know, come on, Richard, someone's got to go in and help run this thing. So I do remember saying to her, well, look, I'll give it six months, mum, and see what I feel. And, uh, you know, 20 years later, I was still there. But uh, unfortunately, what happened was uh, my mum started doing a bit of digging uh, in the years post uh, my father's death uh, on where some of the money seemed to be going to, or not, not ending up in the right spots. And, um, dug up a few things in relation to some of the management that was running the company. And she appointed an independent uh, board member, an old family friend. And I think just by virtue of the, the pressure that was starting to be applied on, uh, you know, making the numbers add up, uh, some of that management left uh, on very short notice. And it was really the senior management of the company that had been running the business for, for many years. So, at the age of ripe old age of, I think I was 22, maybe I was 23, um, I was thrown into the big chair and I really was you know, very unprepared for it. Uh, but, uh, you know, really a lot of my youth disappeared at that time because I, you know, at that point we had two factories, we were employing over 200 people and uh, yeah, it certainly took the fun out of my weekends, I can tell you. So, you know, I was juggling my motor racing at that point both from a you know time and quite frankly from a financial perspective because I think I was being paid the total sum of fifty dollars a week back then, um, so there wasn't a, a lot of uh, extra money to go around. But it became very very demanding as I really started to get stuck into the business. I was still trying to juggle my motorsport, but it ended up being a very sort of stop start process. Really post post nineteen eighty when I won the F two championship. Really throughout the eighties, I I made various sort of comebacks i suppose you'd say but uh, most of them were pretty short lived simply because of the pressures of uh, running the business in an industry that was you know rapidly being overrun by cheap imports from overseas so we were you know we were really struggling to to stay afloat to be quite honest with you until we finally took the decision to wind the company up uh, in 1993 it certainly was hard times in in local industry as far as as far as that was concerned when when things folded up but you, you hung on right to you know probably a lot longer than many others well within our industry we were quite frankly we were one of the sort of first to pull the pin but um uh, there's really no no domestic footwear manufacturing in australia that exists now so uh um, but we, we took the decision back then to, quite frankly, to jump before we were pushed. And, uh, you know, back in 1993, I walked away after 20 years uh, in the industry with the shirt on the back um, and really nothing else and had to start all over again. And uh, it was the time when um, both my boys had shown a, uh, a um, an interest in getting involved in racing go-karts and... Uh, from a personal point of view, really from the the first day that Alex said, Dad, I'd love to race, was the day that I pretty much decided that I would stop messing around with it because that's all I was doing by that stage and put all my efforts and energies into trying uh, to help and support him. Going back to the Formula 2 championship, you, you've left Formula Ford, you've had a year out, you've come back in 1980 and... With a new car and a, 
and a new class won the championship in your first year. Yeah, I feel very fortunate, um, Gary. Uh, I'd uh, linked up with a fellow by the name of Jim Hardman, who will be known to to many, uh, who he'd been um, he'd been sort of engineering my brother's Formula Five Thousand uh, during the late seventies. So I'd sort of got to know Jim, and uh, he'd shown a real interest and desire to build a car of his own. Um, and uh, when I finished Formula Ford at the end of '78, uh, uh, my year off in '79 was really—it it wasn't an intentional year off as such. It was the year that was spent um, with Jim building the, the Formula Two car, and uh, and we really hit the ground running in 1980. But I, you know, by then, and it was the first time I really had someone in my corner that you know knew what they were doing in relation to setting up cars and you know it was a, a very different scenario for me uh running with a guy like jim compared to you know trying to run a formula ford myself um as, as more or less a backyarder so uh, you know the scenario changed uh, greatly and they were just uh, very very memorable days what you just mentioned what was the the most memorable aspect of those days you you won the championship and there was Guys like John Bow and John Smith on their way through, you know, to their professional careers, and you were racing with and against, you know, those particularly those two guys were went on to full on professional careers. What what was memorable? Why do you why do you say that was some memorable times? Good memories, bad memories, fun. What what were they? <laughs> I think a mixture, but not too many bad memories. Um, I think a mixture of all of the above, you know, racing wheel to wheel with the guys uh, of the likes of John Smith and John Bow um, was, you know, it was, it was racing that I'd never really experienced before at a, at a level that was just a completely, uh, you know, much, much higher than any level that I'd been involved with. Um, but also, you know, winning races, um, driving with wings and slicks and, you know, uh, the Hardman was a full, full ground fix car uh, probably nearly the last of the full ground effects car. It was just an, a, a, an amazing period. You talk about um, you know, full-on racing when you moved to the Australian Drivers' Championship in 1982 after second in the Formula, Four to, Formula 2 Championship the year before. The start of Formula Pacific, Formula Atlantic, whatever you wanted to call it, they were heady days. Those cars were banging into each other. It was a whole new revelation of how close uh, open wheel racing could be and you were right in the thick of it yeah well, look it started off extremely well um uh we bought a car uh with the assistance of a fellow i'd got quite close to a guy by the name of clive millis who'd been um you know racing during the 70s himself clive had decided that his racing days were behind him but he wanted to assist uh a young guy coming through um I didn't have the funds to buy the car, so Clive agreed to uh, go 50-50 with me, and we bought the car that Bruce Allison had brought out here for the for the very first uh, Formula Pacific series during um, during 80, 81. Uh, the car arrived, I think, in July. He air freighted it out. The first round was at um, Lakeside. He raced the car. For the rest of that year, and uh, and we purchased the vehicle from him uh, in December, December eighty one, uh, and prepared ourselves for the eighty two season. 
and we started off extremely well. Um, and we were second by the smallest margin to John Smith at uh, Oran Park in the first round. Um, and, and only because we were coming, I was leading coming into the start of the last lap and we we're coming up to lap a uh, slower car just as you were about to go over the dog leg. And I went to his left and he mo moved over to his left thinking he was moving over to let me by, which balked me and Johnny Smith went sailing by. But, um, you know, I was awarded the driver of the day that uh, for that event. And, you know, it looked like everything was going to go extremely strongly. But um, unfortunately, we lost a motor uh, at Calder shortly afterwards. And it seemed to be sort of the start of things going backwards from a financial point of view because I just couldn't keep the, couldn't keep the funding up to it. And, um, you know, our results sort of started to slip following that. And then... By mid-season, you know, I had to start missing races due to business pressures. And that's, you know, that's where my juggling act sort of started. Uh, I did the Grand Prix that year at Calder. And that, you know, talk about amazing days. Mm. Um, God love Bob Jane. You know, I know you either hated him or loved him. But uh, what he did for Australian motorsport back in the early 80s, bring the, the Australian Grand Prix to Calder. And for us mm. mere mortals to be able to, you know, race against the likes of, um, you know, Nicky Lauder and Alain Prost and Jacques Lafitte and, you know, um, Keki Rosberg. I mean, just the sort of stuff that young guys dream about, you know. And and but, those uh, and those guys being able to race against, uh, you know, Alfie Costanzo and Richard Davison and John Bow, there was there, there was some good stout local uh, local competitors going at, at, at those events at Calder as well, wasn't there? Well, when you look at Formula One today, you know, and think, think back of what we're able to do back then in the early eighties. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's incomprehensible now. These guys won't even talk to anybody, let alone go and race against anybody else. And then, of course, contractually, they wouldn't be allowed to in any case, but uh, it was, it was, we couldn't that afford was, them, could we? No, probably not. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what uh, old Bob paid them. I think it was, you know, a week up at Hamilton Island and probably all the girls <laughs> they could consume, I think. <laughs> and, and and ARG did it recently with Rubens Barrichello to launch F5000, did they? And it was just one bloke and it was, it was like they sold the farm to bring him here. Oh, and it was absolutely fantastic. It was yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Um, Richard, but retired, before... of course. <laughs> yes, exactly. Just before we, we, we move on with your career, just tell us, you know, you've gone from Formula Ford's running essentially radial road tyres into... Um, you know, the JH1 um, built car the, in Formula 2 and then into the Rolt RT4, the differences in in driving style and what you had to do it to adapt in, you know, in a, in rapid fire. There's only a couple of seasons in each car. What was the, what was it like to be able to move from each form of those open wheelers in, in pretty rapid fire um, fashion? Yeah, it's an int interesting question, and I see, you know, I see some young guys come out of go karts today, <clears throat> where they're used to driving on very sticky tyres, and then go into Formula Ford where the cars move around a lot. And some of them take to it very easily, and some of them really struggle to take to it. Um, I was coming the other way around, coming from tyres that moved around a hell of a lot. I mean, the radials were, you know, farcical really. Uh, and it was like a duck to water for me. The moment I first drove that F2 car, it just it felt it felt natural. Um, and interestingly, the difference in performance of the F2 car and the uh, Atlantic car wasn't that great around Calder. 
you know, it was maybe a second or a second and a half. And I'd, you know, been driving the F2 car for two years during uh, 1881. I'd done, you know, a lot of miles in it. And I still remember vividly my first test day in the uh, the Rolt RT4 in early uh, 82. Uh, the first race meeting, there was a race meeting at Kohler in early 82. And after about eight or 10 laps, my legs were aching that much because of the additional uh, G-forces that that car generated. It was just unbelievable. And uh, I, I look back on it now and, the you know, the grip that those cars had, and we were running on very, very sticky tyres. But as far as adapting, only, only from a physical point of view, that was the only thing I had to deal with. And not, not going from Formula Ford to F2, I had no issue with that at all, but going to F2 to Atlantic for the reasons I still struggle to quite understand, it was, uh, I found that physically very, very demanding. Was there a physical training program in, in your life then, or was it off to work Monday to Friday or off to work every day of the week and then racing in between and physical training was something that really hadn't been thought of yet? Yeah, I think you're pretty right there. You know, I did play a bit of tennis and was very active, just uh, just generally active. But no, I wasn't doing any specific physical exercise. When I when I made a comeback in the late '80s, I did get fairly heavily involved in, um, you know, in, a, in, a, in an exercise regime. But but back then, I think youth took care of most of that. <laughs> I guess I guess it would. So 1982, we just touched on the those fantastic. National Panasonic, I think they were Grand Prix at at Calder. Um, I remember them vividly because they were some of the first events that I was allowed to go to with Dad. And um, um, you know, you're sitting there, I think, in well and truly in qualified inside the top ten. And those names we mentioned before are all sitting on the grid with you. Did did you think, wow, I've made it, I'm off? Uh, look, not so much to me, and I remember. I remember explaining it this way at the time when someone interviewed me about it. It was, for me, it was like the the better than average golfer getting the opportunity to play around with Greg Norman. You know, um, whether it was ever going to lead anywhere else, I didn't really wasn't really ever. In 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 a funny sort of way, my mentality was never thinking about um, heading overseas. Uh, I wish it had of. But I suppose I was so ensconced in running the shoe business back then, I just never really saw that as a, a even a vague possibility. But just the opportunity of uh, racing against these guys, you know, the absolute cream, best in the world, was um, uh, you know was something that will stay with me forever. And just as a side thing with the with the family, then was was any of your brothers? Was John, you know, at the track with you at these times, or was he staying away, still trying to? breathe life into his career or were you were you sort of the the sole davison going open wheeler racing at the time it's it's that is an interesting conversation um john was never very keen on any other member of the family taking any limelight away from himself <laughs> uh, and those of you who know john will know what i'm saying so um did i ever get much support from from John, no, I didn't. In fact, uh, I did one F two race out at Calder. I think it was the Grand Prix of eighty one, uh, where he was still running Formula five thousand, and I was running at that event in F two, not in the Grand Prix. There was a Formula two 
uh, race at the same event. And I still vividly remember quite an active argument that evolved between John and myself. And uh, without going into the detail, I drove that race with two black eyes. So we'll probably leave that one there. Let's let's move uh, on from that one then, Richard. uh, But no, not a lot of support from John. My brother, Chris, uh, who came into Formula Ford in the late 70s and through to the early 80s, he was a farmer. You know, he used to ride down to the race meetings with the trailer on the back of his uh, of his Land Rover with, you know, hay and hay, hay band hanging out the back. And he was incredibly enthusiastic and, you know, gave me as much support as he could. But, you know, he lived in the middle of New South Wales, so we didn't see that much of each other. But uh, my mum by then, you know, she, she'd embraced us racing by then. And I think, quite frankly, she was quite enjoying um you know, being back involved with a lot of her old associates and things. So, uh, you know, any sort of negatives that she'd had early on had pretty much gone. So, you know, she was just enjoying attending and, and being part of it. You mentioned a comeback in the, in the late nineties. So end of, end of, um, end of 82, um, again, life and its adventures take hold and you, 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 your motor racing goes on to the, the back burner a bit. You mentioned a, a, another comeback, as you said, in the the late eighties. What was the what was the form of that? Okay, so look, I did I I done a few one off meetings during the eighties. Um, uh, the first Adelaide Grand Prix, uh, which was a real buzz to be involved with, and Formula Mondial, Mondial as we were calling it then. I think we'd been through about three name changes for the <laughs> for the class. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was the main support category uh, in 85 and 86. And I did both of those races as one-offs. And I think 86 was the last time my Rolt ran up until when I got back on the track just 12 or 18 months ago. Uh, and I started on the front row with uh, JB, with John Bow for that race. Um, and then I actually released a car in 87. Formula Mondial had... Uh, had wound up at the end of 86 and uh, Formula 2 had sort of by default become the senior category. And I leased a car, I think, for the 87 Grand Prix support event. And that was, again, was a one-off. And then uh, the whole Formula Holden uh, thing started to evolve. And I think its first year, and you guys may be able to correct me, I think its first year was 89, but I brought a Rolt RT20 out from the, UK that had been running in um, uh, F3000 uh, and ran again the first part of the 1990 season and again the same issues have evolved where time and money just made it impossible for me to complete the season so 1990 was sort of a, a comeback year that uh, uh, that um, that finished very early and uh, and then I did a one-off race at uh, the Adelaide Grand Prix in 1991. And that was my last motor race until um, oh, some 20-something years later. Just want to hark back to an um, endurance championship drive in a prototype in 1984. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell us how that came about and what it was all about? Um, look, it came out of nowhere. Uh, we'd just... I think we'd just done the Grand Prix at Calder. And again, I'd competed in the Grand Prix in my Rolt as a, as a one-off event. I hadn't been racing it during 84, but I'd qualified and raced 
quite well. I think I finished sixth or seventh in the in the Grand Prix, and um, that event was the uh, round of the World Endurance Championship that um, that I think the Light Car Club was involved in bringing to Australia, and all the alterations were made to Sandown to, uh, to make the circuit comply both in distance and safety and all those other things which I think was the event that sent the light car club broke at the end of the day. Um, but there was a, a, a um, there was a, an English team running a, uh, a car called a Gebhardt, which was basically a, another one of these chassis running um, uh, Cosworth DF, DFL engines, I think they were called, the long-distance version of the engines. Uh, and they had... Uh, New Zealand and Neville Crichton, who many people would either know or know of, um, uh, who I think was you know pretty much paying for the drive, and they were looking for another person to to fill the seat. And um, someone mentioned my name to them, and because I'd done pretty well on the Grand Prix just previously, uh, I was offered the drive and asked to bring some money along. And I said, "Well, I'd love to drive, but I can't bring any money along." Anyway, the long and the short of all that was. Um, I was uh, I was offered the drive, and uh, that was my one and only sort of foray into uh, in, into racing cars with roofs on them. Uh, but that uh, we got very very little time uh, during practice, um, and in fact, the laps I'd done in practice, uh, I still hadn't actually opened the door from the inside, which I think from memory was just a piece of string or something that pulled a handle. And uh, lo and behold, going up the back straight during my stint, all of a sudden the, the uh, cockpit became full of smoke. And the next thing I know, there's, there's flames going everywhere. And uh, I pulled over into the side of the road, you know, wanting to get out as quick as I could. And, of course, I couldn't find the handle. I didn't know where this handle was to open the door. Fortunately, the fire marshals were very quickly uh, on hand and uh, got me out. But... Uh, yeah, that was my foray into sports car racing that really just came out of the blue. And and it nearly read, uh, led to uh, an event in Le Mans uh, at Le Mans 24 Hours with the same team the following year. Uh, but, look, it involved putting quite a significant amount of money together and, uh, you know, we just didn't have the resources at that time to do it. But, um, yeah, it was an interesting period. Richard, I remember... I... Sorry, go on. No, no, go on. Keep, keep going, sorry. No, yeah, funny little memories that uh, that um, that come to mind. But there was uh, a car that was of the same brand, this Gebhardt, that was run out of the same garage at Sandown. And I, there was two Aussie two Aussie girls. I think Sue Ransom might have been one of them, and I just can't remember the other. But then they had this this German girl who was pretty experienced, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was still a young bloke, and uh, there we are sitting in the back of the garage, and this girl, <laughs> this girl gets out of the car and just pulls the overalls off, you know. And <laughs> I mean, I'm saying pulls the overalls off. She pulled the overalls off <laughs> to cool down, and I, you know, no one quite knew which way to look. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I thought, well, this sports car racing's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> when am I going to Le Mans? <laughs> That's it. I think Rusty French was thinking the same thing because he had uh, Miss World hanging off the side of his John Sands Porsche at the same event, didn't he? I think he did. Yeah, I think he did. I think Rusty would probably have a few more um, uh, meaty stories to help uh, to tell than I have. <laughs> well, we should add that one to the list, GAB. <laughs> mm, mm. 
Um, I would like to ask you a really overarching question. We've just spoken about over a decade of your life where it seems as though something in the back of your head was bubbling away about car racing. What was it? What 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 keeps bringing you back? Even to this day, you're still you're still racing. Well, you you know you had some time away with the family, but what is the what is it that what's the scratch that needs to be itched? It's a disease. I mean, um, people who people who come into motor racing often ask me, you know, about it, and I, my my immediate response is, I was born into it. What's your excuse? Because why on no. earth would you do it? To- why on earth would you do it to yourself unless you were born into it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was something I just, I, I grew up with from the time I was born. I was, you know, probably at racetracks in bassinets. And, uh, and of course, because uh, I guess of the, you know, of, of, of my dad and, and how well known he was, it was something that you could never, you know, even people that weren't interested in motorsport knew him or knew of him. So it was, I was just always surrounded with it one way or another. And uh, it was always in the blood and I always wanted to do it. Um, and for one reason or another, could never do it quite at the level that I wanted to. And that really sort of led into me, you know, putting all my energy and resources behind my boys when they decided they did, they did want to. And they weren't pushed into it at all, I can tell you. You talk about that period, or we'll go back to that period, between 1990 and the uh, 10 or 13 years after that. But when you decided to come back, uh, a Lola T332, <laughs> that's a fair jump, isn't it? That was a, you know, everybody says that was a death wish, and I think they were probably right. It was uh, it was a car I, I, I bought at a weak moment um, in around 1990. Uh, it was actually the Lola that... My brother John had raced uh, at the latter part of his career in the late 70s and the car that Teddy Yip, Theodore Racing, had brought out here for Alan Jones to drive during the 77, I think, uh, Rothmans International Series. Um, and uh, it, ca- it, it came to my attention that it was up for sale. Uh, a builder in New South Wales had owned it and... It was, uh, I was running Formula Holden during 1990 and I was employing a guy by the name of John Porter, uh, who was a very dear friend. He was John Bowes' mechanic during the 80s. I was employing John full time for the 1990 um, effort in Formula Holden. This came up, this car came up and for one silly reason or another, I bought it because it was cheap. The builder up there was going broke and needed to get out of it. And my plan was uh, that during John Porter's sort of downtime between races, uh, that he would um, you know, restore this car. And I thought there was maybe a means of making a dollar out of it. The bottom line is uh, we never had time between races. Um, so the Lola just sat there. And quite frankly, once I sort of retired at the end of, you know, officially retired, I suppose, at the end of uh end of 91 after that grand prix race um that was when you know we we're in the midst of closing paragon shoes down i mean money just was non-existent so the car basically sat for the next uh, best part of 10 12 years um uh until the early 2000s where i was starting to get my myself back together again financially and i said to john i'd like to get the lola uh, restored and finished and back on when I say back on track really get it ready so I could sell it 
I had no intention of ever driving it. John, unfortunately, passed away in 2005. Um, and I think he was one of those mechanics of the era that, you know, that were grinding down DS11 brake pads on, you know, angle grinders and things, which, you know, were full of, full of terrible things that a lot of these mechanics of the era, he died, he died of cancer in, in 05. So the car then sat again for several years. It ended up because it was always in South Australia and uh, ended up going to K&A Engineering. Uh, they sort of finished the car off. I then brought it back to Melbourne. And again, it sat for the next few years until uh, my nephew, James Davison, um, who'd been doing some racing in the USA, was out here and we entered it uh ended it for the Phillip Island historic meeting I think it was either 2011 or 12 uh with the view that if James drove it and you know hopefully it got it out there um it would um you know it, it at least it would have been seen and uh, I'd have a better chance of selling it and he drove it like he stole it it was uh, ridiculous how how well he drove that car and then for some bizarre reason I decided I thought it'd be a good idea if um I got my license back so it was <laughs> 21 years, I think, to the day nearly that uh, Motorsport Australia uh, granted me a, a, a competition license again, and I decided to go and have a drive of the Formula 5000, and uh, subsequently did that off and on over the next couple of years before I finally sold the car, and uh, that was an amazing experience. I've got to tell you, I'd never driven Formula 5000s back in the day, and uh, yeah, they are a beast, and um Probably one of my lasting memories of motorsport full stop was a, a qualifying lap I did at Sandown. It was actually the event of the, um, I think it was Sandown 500. So both my boys were there racing uh, supercars. Formula 5000 was sort of like a feature event. And um, I qualified it on pole, I think it's second and a half quicker than the rest of the field. Uh, and in front of, um, you know, the whole V8 field, which was quite a buzz. And, uh, and I remember getting out of the car in pit lane and Roland Dane came wandering up to me and said, Richard, what do you do? What are you doing? You, you are going to kill yourself in that thing. You are an idiot. <laughs> and he was right, of course. He was right about lots of things. But, but uh, yeah, it was one of those laps that um, I look back on. I think I held my breath for the entire uh, um, 66 seconds. Um, and uh, I remember Etten Senna saying one time that, you know, he was able to take himself out of his own body under some of these qualifying situations. And I, I think I did that on that one lap and I don't, don't ever, ever ask me to repeat that lap again. I don't know how I would, <laughs> but fun times, but I sold the car uh, finally and um, uh, moved on. Then went from formula 5,000 back to formula Ford. Isn't that what you do? Well, did that feel a bit slower? Of course. <laughs> Richard, I'd, I'd like to, you know, walk on on to the, your return to the, particularly the Victorian Formula Ford and then the, the Victorian Formula Ford Championship, but also take you back to the beginnings of your boy's career. But I'd like to just touch on um, that 2022 Victorian Formula Ford Championship in the, um, in the Kent engine cars. You came along. And you dethroned Brendan, who'd uh, had probably the 10 championships before you, or maybe even more. Um, what was it like, you know, going looking down to the start of that season and going, I'm going to do this whole year and we're going to come out with the big trophy at the end? Was that was that the goal or were you just looking to do a series? Look, I've, I've been running, <clears throat> I'd been running an historic 
Formula Ford um, in an RF89 Van Diemen and, and really enjoying it. Um, and fortunately, I've been able to hang on to two of the Formula Fords that both the boys started their careers in. This one in particular was the X-Garth Tanda championship winning car that Alex started in and then Will started in. And there's a little buy story on that too regarding Will Power. Remind me to, because I spoke to him on the phone just the other day, um, remind me to mention that uh, before we finish off. Um, but the car had been sitting on a, um, sitting on stands for you know 15 years and uh, Michael Ritter from Sonic, and Sonic was the business I started with Michael Ritter back in the late 70s. Uh, I asked him to sort of restore the car and get it going again. Uh, and then uh, did a couple of test days in it and really wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. And then, um, yeah, for one reason or another, decided uh, with Luke Ellery, who now runs my race cars, uh, let's let's enter for the first round of the, of the state series and sort of see how we go. And uh, uh, I think I won the first round and thought, well, we better go to the second round. And then, and then, you know, the bug bit me, and thought, well, we've got to see if we've got to see if we can um, win a championship, which is sort of the way it, the way it evolved, and uh, we got more and more serious and more and more involved as the as the season went on, and had some great, um, you know, great races with Brendan. That was, uh, and you know, he he probably nearly beat me as many times as I beat him, but at the end of the day, we came out on top, and. Uh, and uh, yeah, very memorable. And I'm I'm very sad. Brendan decided to throw it in after that because he's not running this year, and I'm uh, really missing the competition. Well, you've been running um, in in state level Formula Ford. Yeah, uh, you did a couple of um, races at Bathurst, I think, in support categories as a support category there. But also the Walter Hayes Trophy. I'm keen to hear mm. a bit more about that because you've done several of those, and that's a fairly big event. Yeah, well, my brother Chris is responsible for all that. Uh, in fact, he's responsible for me uh, getting back into Formula Ford. Um, he, he, with his daughter and son-in-law, bought a couple of uh, historic Formula Fords uh, back around 2013, I think. And just as a family, they were enjoying doing a bit of racing together, but not, you know, nothing too serious. And um, uh, for one reason or another, he he took. Uh, Jonathan Miles over to England in 2014 for the Walter Hayes Trophy, which quite frankly, I'd never heard of. And I didn't know, I'd never heard of Jonathan Miles. I didn't know him. And I was sort of saying to my brother, Chris, what are you doing? You know, he's doing this. So anyway, he came, he came back from there all enthused and, uh, and literally grabbed me by the ear one day and lectured me about racing this Formula 5000 and that, you know, the whole family wanted me to get out of it, and you know, eventually I did. I sold the car and and bought a bought a Formula Ford, uh, an '89 Van Diemen, and then for 2015, um, Chris had developed this relationship with the team owner, a fellow by the name of Brian Saul in the UK, and we both decided as brothers because back in the late 70s, you know, we 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 had talked about both going and doing the Formula Ford Festival together. That was something that never evolved for a whole you know, myriad of reasons. Um, so 2015, we decided we'd both go over and do the Walter Hayes Trophy, which is really more or less the equivalent of what was the Formula Ford Festival. 
um, and uh, to do it as two brothers, uh, you know, just for fun, really. But um, it's sort of grown into something a little bit bigger than that. I've now done it four times. Uh, uh, and also via our Ecuria Australia, um, we managed to raise some money um, uh, for a young guy by the name of Will Lowing uh, from New South Wales, who we've sort of recognised as doing some pretty special things as a very young guy in a historic form of Ford up there. So we assisted uh, his his family um with the budget, they'd already decided they were going. Um, but um, I had a call from Brian Saul sort of saying, well, the Lowings are coming over and they, they can only do a limited program. They can't do the testing we think he should do and they can't really uh, buy the number of tyres, which I think they're going to need. Uh, and I said, Brian, why are you ringing me and why are you telling me this? And he said, oh, well, I thought you might, thought you might buy a set of tyres for him. And Chris and I got chatting and uh, we then just put our efforts together and um, literally rattled the tin and, and managed to raise um, a fair amount of money, about twenty or $25,000. And, uh, and Will was able to do not only the Walter Hayes, but also the um, Formula Ford Festival that ran the week before. Uh, and, you know, had, had, the, had the right amount of tyres and the right tools to sort of give it a decent crack. So... I think I've got off the point there, but uh, the, the Walter Hayes has become something sort of uh, we've really enjoyed doing nearly on an annual basis. COVID obviously put uh, an end to that for, for several years, but, um, you know, we went back last year. Chris is no longer driving, but I went back and, and had another run at the end of last year. Um, and it's, it's, it's an amazing event to do. And I don't think as we sit here, I, I, there's nothing I can say that will describe what an amazing event both the Formula Ford Festival and the Walter Hayes are, given that they are events run just for Formula Fords. And you think, well, how can you run an event just for Formula Fords? These events are huge. The grandstands are full. The, the, and, and the beauty of Formula Ford now back in the UK again is although they went through a series of different engines uh, after they finished with Kent, and they finished with the Kent engine in the early 90s, I think about 93. They then went to an engine called the Z-Tech, then I think the Duratech. Then Formula Ford nearly ceased to exist, you know, back in the uh, early 2000s, and they've now reverted back to the Kent engine. So the interesting part about that is you can be running literally a brand-new car, brand-new, you know, 2023-built car, against a, a, a good young guy in a, you know, mid-90s car, uh, and you're all running the same engines, the same tyres, and a good young guy will take it up to, you know, someone in a modern car. And it's, it, So the category is huge because it covers, it covers all generations of cars, whereas out here, as we were discussing in the State Series, I'm running Kent. The National Series guys are, are running the Juratec engines, which are another, you know, 30 horsepower or something. So we we don't compete with each other as such. We run as a separate class off the back of the grid. So the events over there are, are, are massive. You've got past champions that, that enter just for that event. Um, you've got drivers from all around the world that come and enter for that event. And believe you me, if you win one of those events, you know, people take notice. Yeah, for sure. They, they are certainly um, very much a sought after trophy in, in, in a, in a young or a, an older competitor's career. That's for sure. Richard, I'd like to 
take you back to, I guess, the other part of your racing life, and that is the next generation with um, with your boys. Um, you mentioned with go-karting with Alex, he said, yeah, dad, I really want to have a go at this. And and you were, it seems as though you were more than willing to to halt what you were up to and, and put the resources um, into, into Alex. And then obviously into Will tell us just about the, uh, without going to the upper echelon where the boys are both operating now, but the early days of those two being involved. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned before, there was, there was never any pressure from, from my side for them to go racing. Um, in fact, probably nearly the contrary. And because I hadn't raced a lot during the 80s, as they were sort of in their their young years, they, they weren't really exposed to it. Um, so it wasn't sort of, you know, in their DNA quite as much um, as it otherwise would have been. But I then made my sort of comeback in um, 1990. Alex was then 10, I think. And, um, and I still vividly remember uh, my Formula Holden being pushed back into the garage at Phillip Island, I think it was. And this little head appeared beside the cockpit as I was sitting in the car and, and he just said, Dad, I want to race now. And I think <laughs> um, and I think it was probably the first time he'd really sort of seen it close up and seeing me do it. And, and you know, that day really I pretty much decided, well, if, if he wants to race, I'm happy to just stand aside because I'm, you know, I was I was playing with it at that stage, and it was probably more frustrating for me than anything else because I wasn't able to do it the way I wanted to do it. So uh, yeah, we went and bought a little rookie go kart, and um, and uh, you know that was the start of uh, start of their involvement. But I, you know, I did I, because I'd made so many sort of fundamental mistakes myself during my early years, and that was just through not not knowing what to do, not having the right people around you. You know, listening to the wrong people, spending money on all the wrong things, um, wrong equipment. Uh, I just, I just set about trying to ensure that they just had the right, the right equipment, the right people guiding them. And I was really there just to tighten up the wheel nuts. But um, we we immediately got involved with some really good people on the on the go kart side of things. And although it was very much done as father and son, you know, we had good people guiding us. And uh, and really from from day dot. Uh, you know, they had a solid solid foundation to build on. Were they actually winners in those early days of karting, both of them? Like, could you see that they were going to progress to bigger and better things? Yeah, look, that's a really interesting question um, because, you know, part, part of that whole process back then is, well, where does this go? Um, and... I'd made a decision very early on, and it was a conversation I had with both the boys, that if they were not in a position where they were either being paid to race or certainly on a pathway that was looking like that by the age they were 20, then they'd just have to go and get a real job. Um, but, they, you know, they both excelled, you know, from, from, a very, from really the very beginning. So it, we were just constantly building on success all the way through in, in that respect. Um, until it got to the point where, you know, we decided we had to then make the next step, which was up to Formula Ford, which I still see as the most vital training ground for any young driver, no matter where you want to go, no matter what sort of cars you want to end up in, whether they be open wheelers or tin tops or anything else, there's no better training ground than, uh, than Formula Ford. But we could spend an hour talking about that alone. I know we haven't got mm -hmm. that time. But uh, having the right people around us and really, yeah, it was 
they were they were winning races from the very beginning and I've got a container full of boxes of their old go-kart trophies that I don't know what to do with anymore because they don't want them either. That you know, I can't bring myself to throw them out. <laughs> <laughs> Put them in a museum somewhere. Well, maybe one day, yeah. Yeah. So, Richard, the, the boys' careers have obviously taken off and they're both professional and have been for a very long time in, in motorsport. How does how does that make you feel what what is the feeling from you is it do they have to go and get a real job at any stage or are they okay doing what they're doing <laughs> oh god that that's a good question you know because they're both sort of at the tail end of their professional careers and that probably worries me more than anything else people often ask me oh do, do you worry about the boys you know at the beginning of a race and I say well look, I'm probably more worried about them when they stop racing because uh you know professional sports people have got to deal with deal with all that both from a you know, mental perspective and a financial perspective. But look, hopefully they've both done well enough during their professional careers to, in essence, set themselves up for the next stages of their lives. Uh, but they're still going to work out what they're going to do for the following 30 or 40 or 50 years. Um, and support the next generation of Davison race car drivers, of course. Uh, yeah, well, who knows? Who knows what's going to be uh, on that agenda? But I don't think I'll be part of that one. <laughs> they, they might get a job in commentary. They both um, like a chat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, look, uh, they they do both speak very well. And the one thing I I did insist upon, even though financially it was very difficult at the time, was uh, was put them through, you know, give them private school education. And um, uh, people often say to me, oh, "Your boys speak so well." And I, I, I turn around and say, "Well, I'm." I'm glad all that money that I paid to those schools was worth something because they had no interest in school whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so, like um, a lot of us. Uh, um, Richard, you did say, remind me to remind you about Will Power and a conversation you've had with him recently and the, and the Formula Fords that were shared amongst you guys as well. Yeah, but it's funny how things go around. I mean, um, Will and Will Power, of course, raced wheel to wheel for the 2001 Formula Ford Championship, and then both went to both went to England, uh, and were both competing not only on the track but competing massively off the track for for funding, and really for funding out of Australia, both through um, uh, uh, the CAMS Foundation as it was back then, and and any private individual that would listen who wanted to be part of hopefully the next Formula One World Champion. So they. they there wasn't a lot, a lot of love lost between them during that period. It was just exceptionally competitive, both on and off the track. But subsequently, they've both gone their own directions and have just become the best of best lifelong friends, and and have been now for the last you know twenty years, I guess, close to. But uh, funnily enough, you know, you talk about um, what people are going to do post motor racing. Well, obviously, Will Powers, you know, now into his early 40s and uh uh i got a phone call out of the blue from him the other day saying richard would you mind if we have a chat about car washing because my you know my career post the shoe business was uh was involved in setting up car washes all around australia and it's something that i've really only just quite recently sold out of but i've spent 30 years doing that so so Will, Will was interested to know something about car washing because he thinks he might build some car washes over in the USA in uh, Charlotte, North, North Carolina. Anyway, along, along the way, we just started chatting about 
some of the old cars that he's buying back some of his old cars. He's bought his original Formula Holden that he won the gold star in, I think. And, um, I'm talking about his dad because his dad and I raced wheel to wheel, uh, in, in F2. Uh, and, uh, talking about the car that I'm currently running, uh, which is the RF 95 that Alex started in. And there was a, there's quite a well-known photo, uh, at Lakeside with Will Power driving up and over the back of Alex in the, in the RF 95. And we were, we were just having a good old laugh about that. And, uh, you know, he's a very, very down-to-earth, normal, natural person, Will. It's great that um, that those, I guess, those battle years can be shelved for, for friendship in, in later life and, and also, you know, touching on two generations of Davisons and Powers racing against each other in, in open wheelers is always, always uh, I guess, heartwarming for those people that are most closely uh, involved with, with, you know, in that competition. Um, Richard, going forward for, for Richard Davison, we're also here to tell the story about you. You're back racing in the 2023 Triple Eight Home Loans Victorian State Race Series. Um, it's now on Blendline TV, of which you get a you get a little bit of uh, feature coverage there with Callum Brannigan and Paul Zitty calling the action. Is is this something that's going to continue on for a few more years? Well, look, I'd like to think so. You know, I. I hate even thinking about this number, but I turn 70 next year, um, which scares the hell out of me. But it's, as people keep saying to me, age is just a number. And look, while I'm doing it, while I'm enjoying it, um, and while I can afford to do it the way I do it, and the way I do it is, you know, I've got a great team with um, Luke Ellery and his his amazing partner, Alice Piccolo, who run a fantastic team out of Warrigal. They prepare my cars. They take them to the track. You know, I literally arrive with my helmet. It's it's not the most economical way to go motor racing, but quite frankly, you know, it's the only way I want to go motor racing these days. The thought of dragging the trailer and setting it up myself and doing all that, uh, it'd be back to where I started, where I'd be literally kicking the tyres and probably not doing any good. And part of the reason I think I'm, doing okay now is I know every time I get in that car, it's the way it should be. It's set up beautifully. And, um, you know, going back to a little conversation we had uh, just before where you said, you know, did the boys start winning from day one when they started racing go-karts? And and this is something that I I just recall vividly that there'd be certain go-kart races we'd go to where some young kid who you know, normally never ran anywhere, would all of a sudden be running up front. And and, I, and and I'd dwell on that afterwards and think to myself, you know what, a lot of these kids are just as good as my boys, but the problem is when they do well, they don't know why they've done well. And it probably just so happened that the conditions of the track on that day fell into a window where their cart was working really well for them. But you know, they just didn't have that capacity or, or the people around them to learn how to, you've got to keep adjusting your cart to suit the conditions, et cetera. And, it, and I guess it's just a lesson that, you know, I learned and it's probably a lesson for all young guys coming through. You, you just got to have the right people who can, um, you know, who can assist you with all that so that you, you know, you're not running around at the back where quite frankly, you've probably got the same skill as the guys running up the front. Richard, uh, we're rapidly running out of time, which is which is quite sad. But it's um, at this time, I 
always ask our guests is two two particular questions. First of all, the single best day ever at the racetrack for you. And the two part, the second part to that question is your biggest nemesis, someone you went to a racetrack and you went, oh no, I have to race that person. Oh, this is going to be a tough day. <laughs> I think that's every race thing I go to these days. But, uh, oh, look, winning the F2 championship, uh, the, the, the last lap at Sandown, which was actually a funny how it evolved because um, uh, John Smith was really looking like taking the championship and had a massive accident down in Daniel Road Corner. Uh, I'd struggled that race meeting. Um, we had a, an engine problem on the Saturday and, and it had to put uh, another engine in, which was just simply not up to the mark. I'd actually qualified on pole, but was struggling. And I still remember seeing Smithy backwards into the fence at Dandenong Road Corner. And for about a millisecond, I felt sorry for him and then very quickly said, hell, this is the championship. This is me and taking the chequered flag. So that was obviously a very special moment because, as I often say to people, there's not enough room on the trophy to say how you won it. And once you've got that trophy, it's probably part of the reason, you know, we're speaking now because I, I'm a past Australian champion and you can't take that away. So that was probably the most special moment. And, you know, watching my boys, uh, Will win Bathurst, uh, very, very special moment. Watching Alex win the Career Cup Championship in 2004, extremely special moment. They're racing together at Bathurst again this year. And, um, you know, there's not going to be that many more opportunities for them to do that. And uh, that will be the most special moment in my in my whole motor racing career if, uh, you know, they managed to take that off. Well, at least you won't have to cut up two shirts to make one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a lot of fun. That was a fun era. That was a fun era. And uh uh, but yeah, when they're racing together, at least I'm not running up and down pit lane like a madman. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 your nemesis, you don't have to answer it. But if there's someone no. you went, oh, that's I don't have to. I'm going to have to really work hard this weekend. Probably JB, I think John Bow. You know, John John was a shocker because he's the hardest guy you'd ever race against, and you knew you knew before you you know the the flag dropped that that you were going to have to work for you know, for every piece of the track and probably a little piece of the track that you weren't on as well, trying to either avoid him or get around him. And at that, you know, JB was, uh, uh, there was a quite, quite a, a, a well-known piece on TV. Um, I think it was 82 running the Rolt at Calder. I went for the lead down the inside of JB at the back, at the end of the back straight as JB often did. As I got into the hole, the hole disappeared uh, I had to take avoiding action. And then Andrew Medecki, because I had sort of lost momentum coming through the uh, right, left around, I think it was called Tank, was it, or Tin Shed at Kohler. Um, uh, I'd lost momentum and I moved out to the right to take the left-hander and lo and behold, Andrew was there and we clashed. And he ended up backwards into the fence with a very bent car and uh, I ended up limping back to the pits. And as I was being interviewed, um, uh, on Channel 7, I think it was, a very mad Andrew Medecki came running up and we ended up having this punch-up on <laughs> on live television. And uh, and I think uh, one of the commentators earlier in the um, earlier in the broadcast had, had described Andrew Medecki as looking more like a stockbroker. And then as he came, 
And then as he came running up to start throwing punches, I remember the uh, the commentator saying, and there's one very angry stockbroker. <laughs> so, uh, and, of course, Andrew, JB drove on to win the chocolates. Of course he did. Of course he did. Of course he did. But uh, and Andrew and I, uh, you know, became very close friends after that. It's funny how sometimes incidents like that, you know, you bury the hatchet later on and uh, mm. can sometimes lead to sort of lifelong friendships. It is interesting when you get into a room and the three of us just in this conversation of like-minded people, you can go to the racetrack and you could be with stockbrokers, you could be with storemen, you could be with cleaners or mechanics or engineers, whatever it might be. All of that sort of just gets put aside. We're all here to enjoy motor racing, whatever it might be on a dirt track, on a, on a racetrack, whatever it might be. It's the, the, and, and I'll mimic my own question here. My greatest aspect of going motor racing is that when you go there, everyone's there for the same reason. You want to go racing in some form or another in the role that you're playing that day. And it's, it's always fantastic that those, I guess, rivalries can be shelved for a moment and become friends. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, look, it's, it's a large part of what I'm absolutely loving about racing at state level. Now it's, uh, you know, it's very competitive. You race hard, but the atmosphere is very relaxed and, uh, you know, no one's no one's really out there to um, you know to kill each other, uh, and uh, it's you know it's a it's a great environment. It certainly is. I, last thing I would wanted to just just say was um, when you won the championship, we sent young bright eyed Callum Brannigan down to your shed to interview you, and you hadn't been out of the car for too long, and it's it's actually one of the best bits of footage we've covered with with Blenline and the State Series of. You just you just getting out of the car and realizing you've won the championship in the car that your your boys both raced in, and talking with Callum, it's still one of his major motor motorsport highlights is to be with a microphone and capturing your raw emotion as that all occurred. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it doesn't take a lot to make me well up, to be honest with you. I'm quite an emotional person. I, I think I might have said to you the other day that I, you know I cried at, 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 in Blades of Glory and Talladega Nights, so it doesn't take a lot. But it was it was an extremely emotional moment for me. It was sort of like just everything came home to roost. And uh, although you know I, I don't take it out of context, and you know winning the, the Kent Division of the of the Victorian State Series is you know it's not going to lead me to uh, any world championships, but just just to have been able to emulate what my boys did in that same car and to do it all those years later. Because, you know, normally you get your boys driving the car that you used to race 20 years after the event. It's a little bit unusual that I'm racing the car that they raced, you know, 20 or 25 years earlier. But, yeah, it was very emotional for a whole myriad of reasons that I can't really even explain. But, uh, but it was a very, very, very special moment. On that note, Richard, thank you so much for your time um, on the Grassroots Racing Podcast. It's um, like many of the stories we try and tell here, we've we've really just glossed across the top of them. And then there's certainly, uh, we'll leave the door open from version two when you've taken another Victorian title or something like that. We can, uh, we can, we can talk further, but um, thank you very much for taking the time with us today. Yeah, Darren. Thank you, Gary. Thank you very much. Uh, greatly appreciate you inviting me on the show. Yeah, and it. always, always remember too that these days, seventy is now fifty. <laughs> <laughs> oh hell! I thought it was going to be forty. <laughs> <laughs>
There's nothing quite like being diagnosed with the Peter Pan complex, Richard, where that's yeah. what motorsport's all about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, ha- and happy to keep it going. That's exactly right. Thank you very much, Richard, um, for, for joining us on the Grassroots Racing Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure, fellas. Thank you. Cheers. Fantastic uh, chat there with Richard Davis and Gaz. What a hell of a career spanning such a, a long, long time and still success you know, right up until this very week. Well, it's, it's not, a, you, you think sometimes that these things just all happen easy, but they don't. And he had to really work hard to get to where he was. Yeah, look, and, and obviously the, the family is steeped in tradition and there's, you know, I guess um, some expectation externally from the family, but they all seem to just trot along with it and do quite well. And uh, it's great to have Richard on and explain his journey and his passion for, you know, his two boys who still operate at the, the very top of the game here in Australia and, and have done internationally. Well, don't go much higher, do they? That's exactly right. Correct. Well, what has been happening around certainly the Triple Eight Home Loans Victorian State Circuit Racing Championship was uh, promoted by the Australian Sports Sedan Association of Victoria only last weekend. A, uh, a a good couple of days of racing, actually. Gaz it was really that uh, ding dong battles. You know, good short sharp races. Couple of um, couple of safety cars in 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 here and there, but. Uh, um certainly the big v8s had a, a great run brian finn in the force accessories uh car in his commodore took out the round over matt horn and david ratcliffe um the improved production racing association of victoria luke gritch gumbo damien milano and ian mcclellan all in holdens ian mcclellan in his monaro and a big special mention actually to danny timewell who won race one for the weekend and he's been pushing really really hard and developing his uh Commodore as well in uh, the series and has done a terrific job there as well. 944s was won by our old mate Chris Lewis Williams, who uh, I reckon uh, we had a bit of a, I had a bit of a chat with him in the paddock. We'll, we might get him on at some stage in the near future, Gaz, and have a bit of a chat to Chris. He's got a good story to tell. Well, particularly if he's time at the Benhalla Auto Club, I would imagine. Well, yeah, and that's that was clearly over in uh, the conversation that I had with him and Matt Baraguana, <laughs> who were both no longer on site there. Campbella was second. Adam Brewer got home. And I tell you what, watch out for Adam Brewer. He is coming. He's, he's threatening and threatening and threatening, but it's not going to be long until greatness comes his way. A ripping bloke, great race driver. And uh, he'll he'll be on the, the next couple of steps to the podium in the near, near future. Formula V saw Reef McCarthy in the Sabre take out the round over Nick Jones in a Sabre and Lee Partridge in a Sabre there as well. BMW E30, Royce, Royce Line took a uh, round victory and uh, really good driving by the young fellow there. Brian Burke over Jesse Bryan rounded out the three there. Formula, uh, Formula V were also in the mix, covered that one. Um, the I guess the two big categories was Formula Ford National Series was taken out by Matt Hillier in the Sonic car, Harrison Sellers in the Spectrum, and Jake Santa Lucia for Sonic and the Formula Ford Kent taken out by our great guest on this particular episode, episode 32 of the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing Podcast, Richard Davison, just beating home in the last race, uh, Peter Fitzgerald, and my old mate Mark Zellner. The Z-Man has uh, spent a long time in motorsport, works at Revolution Race Gear, worked at Motorsport Australia. Fantastic to see uh, Mark Zellner getting up for a third place there in the Formula Ford Kents in the national round. Uh, the I guess the title category was the uh, Rightway Industrial Saloon Car Nationals Gazza, a category dear to your heart over many, many years. Heat one, same here. 
Heat one taken out by Travis Lindorf. Heat two by Scott Dornan, who got a real short back and sides in the final. Scott did. Grant Johnson, the previous champion, he won heat three. But the final, it came down to, uh, well, it was all Ford Falcon AUs. And Brad Vaughan took the chocolates, the South Australian. Mason Harvey got home second in his AU in from Western Australia. And Daniel Johnson, the president of the Saloon Car Association here in Victoria, came home third. And I guess a fitting podium there as well. Always amazes me, Gaz, when we go to these saloon car nationals that the South Australians and the Western Australians, they come over with the big guns and they always leave with the silverware. Yeah, they certainly do. And um, to be fair, I guess uh, Grant Johnson was third across the line in that final, but uh, was pinged five seconds for overlapping on a restart after a safety car situation. But yeah, we've seen them. We've seen a couple of the Holdens up there early in the race, but they just couldn't maintain the base in the end. Yeah, that's true. And it's been a Commodore track for the last little while. But when you look at it, there's three three AUs across the line. And over the years, you could you could go to a track and after first practice in the saloon cars, you go, oh, it's going to be a, it's going to be the Commodores this weekend. They've taken out the first four or five spots, and uh, it didn't quite work out like that because Scott Dornan and Travis Lindorf in their Holdens were. Uh, were very very quick what right throughout the weekend, but it, when it all comes oh. down to it, the uh, the the final is the final, and the right way Correct saloon me car national. Wrong, but I think Holden's won all three heats, didn't they? They did. Yeah, they did. <laughs> there you go. Saved saved the tires for the end in the uh, on the <laughs> on the Fords. So yeah, a great great round in the Triple Eight Homelands Victorian State Circuit Racing Championships at Sandown. Yeah, well, up at Sydney. Uh, Motorsport Park, there was a um, round of the New South Wales State Championship. It was held on a Saturday on the Druitt Circuit, which is a northern shorter circuit. Unfortunately, only attracted about 100 entries, so it wasn't real big. And I guess the highlight categories, uh, Formula Vs, Darren Williams won all three races in HQs. Uh, Brett Osborne took the, the chocolates over Luke Harrison and David Proglio. But uh, Luke did actually win one race. It was uh, one of the three races they had. Improved production, under two litre, Kurt McCready. Well, you would have expected that. Over, over two litres went to Steve Engel in his Evo. And Formula Ford's Caleb Bassett uh, won two of the races. And Will Liston came home in his historic uh, Formula Ford to win the other. He's doing um, some good driving, Will, isn't he? Yeah, the guy we know obviously from the TV world, he's been entrenched in motorsport TV world for some time, but fantastic to see back out racing in the Liston. Yep, and um, I was actually at uh, Queensland Raceway for the uh, Speed Series round up there, and uh, quite interesting meeting. And if you watched, if you had Stan Sport, you would have seen it all plenty of action. Uh, Tom Heyman, who came out of Aussie racing cars, so a short period in Aussie racing cars, 19 or just had his 19th birthday, won all three races. One was declared a no race because they had an incident in early in the first race. So he won the round and the three races. Uh, Will Brown won the two of the three races in suit in the, uh, I was going to say Super Touring then, but in the... Um, the other Super Touring, TCR? TCR, that's TCR. it. Cut that bit. <laughs> I know where you were going. You were going with the super cheap auto TCR. I can see it. It was yeah, written all over exactly. the place. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You are on holidays, won... Gazzy. You know, you can trip yeah. up every now and again, mate. Just relax. He won two of the re three races and uh, 
big shout out to Brad Harris who won the reverse grid race and he actually lost the lead at the start but got it back and went on to win. Now, Brad's only in his third race meeting in TCR coming out of improved production under two litres and more recently in the RX-8 Cup where he's had some wins there. So big shout out that he wasn't going to lay down even though he's off the front row uh, to past Michael Clemente and then uh, hold him out and Will Brown out of a place there and uh, did take that out. Pretty good, big effort. Uh, the other categories, uh, Nash Morris <laughs> proved that he's uh, a couple of race wins at Sydney Motorsport Park in the Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge were no fluke because he won all three races at Queensland Raceway, given that um, he, pretty, he probably knows that place reasonably well, at a guess. Um, so he, yeah, he had a really good weekend to get, and then we had the, uh, uh, monochrome GT4s and the mobile one Australian production cars running in the evening on well, what we call the fight in the night. You might remember that well, Dash. You called every single one of them until last weekend, guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The hot chips and tomato sauce was always a flavour of the night. As you can tell by the look on my face, I know we're an audio-only podcast. It's very disappointing yeah. that I wasn't there for that. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Shane Smolin and uh, I'm actually surprised Lachlan the race went ahead when I wasn't there. You know, that's the sort of yeah. <laughs> Shane Smolin, how dare Lachlan they? Beneath. Yeah. Well, can I get this out? Or are you yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shane Smollin and Lachlan Maneef won the night race and actually were first across the road, the line in um, the Sunday race as well. But unfortunately, got pinged for not starting in the pit box correctly. And that gave Mark Griffin and Nash Morris a win in the second race. So that was in the GT4s, in the uh, uh, production cars, a big field of production cars there to back them up. And um, it was a Sharon, uh, Ian Sharon, as it was, because uh, Grant Sharon ran into him at one stage. That didn't help him, but he still got across That's the line. It's going well for the brothers, isn't it? And um, another strong performance came in from the Colby Cowan, Lindsay Kearns, Ford Mustang. They were right up there in the mix as well. Um, a shout-out to to uh, Tyler Mecklem and uh, Hadrian Morrell. They actually knocked off Cameron Crick and Dean Campbell in the Evo battle. That That is a, A1. For the first time this year, they had a win over them and, and finished um, in the top places in the production cars. Great to see um, Colby Calvin and Lindsay Kern in that Mustang. I mean, they debuted that and had it on the front row of the grid at Sydney Motorsport Park. And they've that's done the, that's the oldest Mustang out there. You know? Yeah, they, they've done well. well they've done very well. From there. Yep. Um, more recently, of course, last weekend, uh, the Bend hosted supercars. And we, we will touch on a couple of the categories, the ones that sort of count from our sphere, which will be the two outer 86s, of course, where uh, Ryan Thompson, Cody Bircher and Ryan Kasher won the three races, but Cody Bircher took the round overall, and he's come out of Formula Ford, so he's still racing Formula Fords. In the Utes, it was David Cedars over uh, Cameron Crick with Royal Harris Fur. Now, Cameron won two races, David won one, and Cameron was actually filling in for Adam Borg, who was away. And in TCM, Ryan Hansford uh, was the overall winner, but uh, shout out to Joel Heinrich, who was in one of Bob Middleton's Chef Camaros. He finished second for the round. Stevie J finished third, and Stevie J still had, well, Stevie Johnson still has a reasonably good lead in that series. 
geez, Joel Heinrich has been getting lauded from all all angles on social media. He just drove brilliantly, and good on him. Yeah, that's a that's a beast of a car to to, to you know to muscle around. And there's some there's some pretty strong races in that category. You know, John Bauer was full of full of compliments for him. So you know that's nice mm. to hear that sort of stuff, isn't it? It is very good. Yes, so, um, coming events up. Coming up. Um, all I can report from from down here is the ARC, the Australian Rally Championship. Um, the Bosch Motorsport Australian Rally Championship has got the the middle of everywhere Gippsland Rally on this weekend, and the 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 ARC just seems to be going from strength to strength at the moment. With, I mean, the entry list looks fantastic. Lewis Bates and Harry Bates, Nathan Quinn in the Hyundai i20 G4 car. You got Scotty Petter in the Fabia R5 car. Um, Luca Nia in the Festiva Mark II there as well. Troy Dow in the um, Festiva Rally II. Um, Eddie Maguire also in the um, R5. And the list just goes on. Alex Rullo, he's got Steve Glennie beside him this weekend. The Western Australian on the I-20 Rally II car. Daniel Gonzalez, a guy we know from the Australian Prototype Series. He's now got the Skoda Fabia R5. Jamie Luff stepping up from um, Ivan Register's old uh, WRX, and they've got um, the uh, GR Yaris AP4 entry. The list just goes on. It's a fantastic. Uh, Is Troy resurgence. Troy Dow on that in, in yeah, yeah. Well? yeah, Troy there in the um, in the active rally sport with Bernie Webb, his um, normal navigator, and they're uh, in the um, in the Fiesta Rally Two entry. So um, just going to be a ripping ripping event down there in, uh, in Gippsland. Looking forward to that. This week, this yeah. coming weekend. Well, the following weekend, because I don't know what's going on next weekend. I'm not in the country, but the following weekend, World Time Attack on the Friday, September one, and Saturday, September two, really should be good because the cars will actually be on slicks this year. So, given let's hope that we have good weather, and there'll be a new record set. And I think the current record is about a one nineteen seven that belongs to Bart Moyer in the uh, billet Porsche. So. Good expectation that that will get knocked off. And then, of course, the following weekend, we've got Speed Series at Sandown and the Master Blast at Sydney Motorsport Park. Yeah, the Precision International National Sports Sedans will be at the Master Blast, Gaz. It's a, a good event, I guess, when you think Master Blast. That's the first category that sort of jumps to the front of mind, doesn't it? <laughs> no doubt. So, uh, yeah, well, that's, uh, that's, that's everything, Gaz. That's episode uh, 32. We're doing all right. I, I saw Greg Rust has now done a hundred, so we're we're a little we've got a bit of catching up to do to the great oh, man. We're, we're a third away there, almost. Yeah, he had a bit of a bit of a self indulgent um, two part episode with uh, with Howie, who um, did the interview, and um, good story about Greg Rust, a mate of ours, obviously from the commentary booth as well. So. I guess but that, that but who's, up, gonna, who's gonna interview us? <laughs> I reckon Body. one day we we will both take over and interview each other. <laughs> I reckon that'll go for about three minutes and then we'll just look at each other and go. No, we're just hearing your exploits in the old Mazda will be that'll take up a couple of hours. <laughs> <laughs> More about the tow car and how I got it there than the than the racing exploit. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap, Gaz. It's a good night, good evening, good day from Daz. And it's uh, Aloha from Gaz. Aloha to everybody. See you in the next one. You've just listened to a Speed Cafe Pod Hub production. <laughs>